I'm going to read uh, the scripture for today in Haggai 1, 7 through 12. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, on, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all of their labors." Hey, will you stand with me? Let's pray for Emilio and Hannah. If you want to come up, you can. If you want to leave the sleeping baby. (laughs) Awesome. Lord, we just love these folks. We are thankful for your work, your faithful work to call them, to love them, to shepherd them, um, to hold them in your arms. Um, We do not glorify people um, because we know that we are Um, but mere servants, Um, and so this day is a celebration of your work. Um, Like we're going to see in the text in Haggai today, um, it is the Holy Spirit that stirs people to action. All credit, all glory, all honor, all recognition is given to you, Jesus, to the Holy Spirit for working in these two and in their family to send them to this place. Um, We do honor them, and we thank you for them, um, that they have... Uh, responded to your spirit's prompting, um, and we do pray that through uh, their hands, their hearts, their words, um, that you'd be glorified in Basque Country, um, that San Sebastian would become um, a place where there is uh, openness and friendliness to uh, the gospel, and uh, that that too would be uh, a work of your spirit for your glory, um, because we know that only you can do that. Um, So, God, we stand asking for miracles. We stand asking for you to open hearts um, that are closed. We stand asking for you to um, uncover eyes that are blind. Um, We stand and ask for you to um, make a way where there literally is no way. Um, And we stand and wait. We stand and wait eagerly to see you move um, as they step out in faith. So as they return later this year in the fall, um, pray that your favor be upon them to find a home. Um, as they engage in new studies, um, particularly in new language studies, uh, that you would be with their hearts and heads, um, that you'd continue to be with the boys as they uh, become more and more um, Basque themselves. And um, whether it is that you endure, uh, that you desire them to endure there as faithful missionaries forevermore, or you move them elsewhere, God, we pray that you would train them in their young days um, to look to you. Um, We're just so grateful. God, thanks for this reminder of grace. Uh, just this picture of grace that you've given us with the opportunity to see these guys today. We love you. We celebrate you in Christ's name. Amen. Ow! Oh, it was so good to see those guys this week. We got to take them to a restaurant that didn't exist when they lived here, which was pretty wild. They're like, where, where are we? <laughs> Is this St. <Saint> Pete? <laughs> oh, man. So it's really great timing. Haggai is, um, is a prophet who's concerned about the dilapidated condition of the temple in Jerusalem 
as the people have returned from exile. Okay, so even as Emilio talked about their hope and church planting and the desire for God's glory in all nations to take place, it's exactly what we're talking about today. Um, and so it's a beautiful moment to just recognize that what, what we're talking about is um, contextually appropriate for us right here as we sit in St. Pete, and it is also contextually appropriate for all peoples in all places in all of the churches that God has all over the world. Um, because God's glory, uh, which we'll get to this in a minute, the temple reflects God's glory. God's glory among the nations is his primary concern uh, for the sake of the good of all people. Okay, So that's what we see Haggai getting at here uh, when he comes and delivers um, really kind of a strong word of warning to the people who have uh, returned um, from exile. So this is, uh, I think, week seven in this series. We've been looking at exile, right? So the history of Israel, um, the, the people, the family that God started when he called Abraham out of all of the nations and said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the dynamic of the way I relate to the entire world through you and through your descendants. Um, so then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Egypt, Exodus, all that stuff took place, right? And they end up back in uh, Israel. They end up back in, in, in the land that God originally promised Abraham, and the kingdom of Israel is established, right? When Saul gets put on the throne, and then they realize, oh, that was a bad choice. And then David gets put on the throne, and then God says, well, you can't build my, my temple. And then Solomon gets put on the throne. He builds a temple, and then the, the, the kingdom goes through fracturing and divisiveness, and a bunch of the kings are really, really wicked, and they begin to follow idols. And God says, I can't abide this. Like, I, I am to be represented by you to the nations, and when I look in on my kingdom that I have established, I see idolatry. I see all sorts of wickedness. I see oppression. I see neglect. I see corruption. Therefore, the kingdom is done. The Israelite kingdom with a king on a throne in Jerusalem is over. And I'm going to remove you away and take you into captivity, right? So then they go into Babylon, and we explored that whole experience and just emotionally what that meant for Israel, what it meant for their identity. It wrecked so much of what they thought they were. Um, it just it, it was a, almost a, a, a crisis of, of personhood for the people of Israel. And not for two years, not for four years, not for one decade, but for 70 years. They were in exile in Babylon. They were in captivity in Babylon. But then God was faithful to bring them back. And if you missed last week, what, last week like I did, uh, you can listen online or, or podcast um, Jason last week talking about Ezra and Nehemiah, which in the Hebrew Bible was one united book, talking about kind of the three waves of return to Israel. Right? And, and what Israel experienced, what the people experienced, often called the remnant in some of these prophetic books, what they experienced when they returned um, is, is what we're going to explore for the next three weeks. Through the prophet Haggai, we're going to look at what Israel's experience was on returning to the land, trying to rebuild their lives, and realizing that nothing is like it once was, and nothing will ever again be like it once was, 
that's where Israel ends up finding themselves after exile. And we're going to explore that here as we look at Haggai. So um, let me read these verses again just to uh, ground us in this text. And then uh, we're going to jump in. We're going to see some parallels between Haggai and Ezra as well because they run, um, they run alongside each other. So here is um, Haggai 1, 7 through 12. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. That I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. But lest we lose hope, verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the the high priests with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God in the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Amen? It's a good news. We're going to get to that in just a minute. Um, let's pray one more time just as we dig in. God, help us to, to hear your word uh, rightly today. Um, we know that it is more than just mere words. Um, we know that we're looking at more than just simply history. Um, so we pray, please, by your spirit, would you quicken our hearts um, to hear and receive. Um, and uh, Lord, like you did among these people um, at that time, would you today in us uh, stir us? Um, stir us to action, stir us to obedience. Would you help us to be assured and comforted in the idea, in the truth, in the reality that you are with us? We need to hear that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's fly back on history real quick so we can ground ourselves here. In Ezra chapter 3, the people come back from the land and they actually start to build the house. Okay, Ezra 3, 8, and 9, it says, Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites, their sons and their brothers. These guys returned to Jerusalem with an edict from Cyrus, the great king of Persia, which is the, the empire that overtook Babylon. Okay, They got a letter from him and they went home with the letter And they said, we can build the temple now. We've got permission. We can start to do it. And so just a little bit after they returned home, they began the work. They organized themselves. They actually did things according to the Old Testament structure that was laid out in how to do temple. They they actually started to follow those commands. They initiated obedience to the Lord. They were filled with vigor and excitement. I mean, they started to sing. They started to pray. They were so pumped. They're like, yeah, we're home. We're free. This is it. Let's rebuild. It's good, right? That's how their beginning started. They started to go to work. They actually rebuilt the altar, it says in Ezra 3, and then they laid the foundation for the temple. But then in Ezra 4, we find out that they stopped building. Duh! Right? Ezra 4, 4 to 5, it says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. 
and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So what happened was the people who were there, the people who already were there when Israelites came back, they started to say, this is, no, this this is not good. We don't want the temple here. There was disagreement about the rebuilding of the temple, and they actually began to to send counselors back to Persia and tell the kings back in Persia, listen, you don't want these people building a temple. If they get a temple, they're going to become rebellious. So don't, don't let the temple building happen. And these Israelites who had returned were discouraged. The work became difficult. They encountered opposition, and they stopped building, and they actually stopped the building for an entire decade. From the time of Cyrus to the time of Darius, they actually stopped building for 10 entire years. And at that point, after 10 years of lapse, is when Haggai comes into the picture with Haggai chapter 1 that we're reading here today. So back up to verse 1 from Haggai chapter 1. It says, in the second year of Darius the king, okay? In the second year, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. I love how this the scripture is so rooted in history. You can absolutely pinpoint exactly when these things took place. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So these same guys who had started and then stopped, Haggai shows up and he says this, thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. And he said, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You you clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So the people had ceased the building because of the fear that had seized them, because of the opposition that was around them. And Haggai comes to the people and says, hang on a minute. You're building your houses. And the temple's over here still in ruins. And he actually comes to them and says, this is disobedience. He actually, some of the words that he calls out to them here... uh, articulate the fact that this is a covenant unfaithfulness that they are committing. And he also calls them to account on their excuses. But first, look at the the covenant disobedience. Haggai puts down a list here. He says, you sow much, but you harvest little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but you're never warm. He who earns wages puts them in a bag with holes. These words that Haggai says bring us all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, where Moses comes to the people and says, here's what the covenant is. This is what God is going to do for us, and this is what we are going to do in obedience to God. And if we follow what God says, this is how we will be filled with blessing. But if we do not do what God says, then this is how we will actually encounter curses. And check this out. In Deuteronomy 28, here's some of the curses that are listed. Verse 30, it says, you shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. 
Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but shall not be restored to you. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink the wine nor gather the grapes. The worm shall eat them. There's a, there's a hearkening back to this covenant disobedience that says when you try to engage in these things, you're going to find them falling through your fingers. They're going to be ev- evading your grasp. Right? Haggai actually tells the people, you're disobeying God. And so much of the haywire in your lives is because of the disobedience of your life. He actually calls them to account of the old covenant and says, remember, being faithful to God matters. Right? Walking in the ways of the Lord matters. When we walk in opposition to the will of God, we're going to see friction in our life. We're going to see struggle, and we're going to see all of these difficulties come. Also, he says, you've made excuses, right? Like we can hear these words. They're kind of strong. Verse 2, he says, these people say the time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord. Then just two verses later, verse 4, he says, is it a time for you yourself to dwell in paneled houses? That's a way of saying nice houses, (laughs) That's a way of saying well-built houses. So you're saying, I can't build, but you're also building. Because so long as I can build my own house, I'm fine, but the house of the Lord lying in ruins isn't of that much significance to me. And so these people are encountering a strong word from the Lord here, right? It's a strong word. And in a little while, we're going to see how gracious the strong word of the Lord is to us. Right? Jason said it last week, better strong truth than false hopes, right? Like it, it, it's important that we humble ourselves to the wisdom and the authority and the power and ultimately the grace and love of our God to come and correct us because therein we will find the great joy of walking in his ways. Now, there's a way in which we can look at Haggai and just simply, moralistically, apply something to our lives, and then walk away thinking we've got a bunch of work to do, okay? Or we can get a really global, kind of full biblical view of what the temple is, and understand how God actually is about the building of his glory, and how the temple of the Old Testament and the temple of the New Testament show us so much about what it is that our lives are actually supposed to be pointed toward, and how it is that God, in his sufficiency, fills us so that we might respond to him. Okay, so that's the journey we must take. First, by looking at what in the world is the temple, and then seeing how God calls these people to faithfulness regarding the temple, and then how does God call us to faithfulness regarding the temple. All right, and so just quickly looking, we, we, we can ask a simple question of, of, of Scripture, and we can say, what, what in the Bible is the temple? Okay, and we have two main sections of the Bible to look at to answer that question. We look at the Old Testament to say, what is the temple? And then we look at the New Testament to say, what is the temple? And so when we look at the Old Testament, we see that the temple is, in fact, a signifier or a, or a, a physical representation of the actual presence and glory of God among his people. 
Okay, the temple was to be the center of, of the Jewish worship and community life so as to point to those who would look inward from the outside so that they could look in and say there is something glorious and significant and weighty and central and comforting and protecting about this God that they serve. The glory of God came to the temple when Solomon built it, and it showed the people that God was in their midst. The presence of God, uh, Joseph read that psalm, is so beautifully points to it, that he's our fortress, that he's our protector, that he's our comforter, right? That he abides with us, that he acknowledges that our life belongs to him when he comes and dwells among us in the temple. So in the Old Testament, this temple reality in Jerusalem pointed the people and the nations around them to see God is great. God is glorious. God is good. God is holy. God is just. God is loving. God is compassionate. God is powerful. God is omnipotent, right? This is what the temple reality was supposed to communicate, both to the people of Israel and those outside of the nation. It's similar to the tabernacle in the wilderness. You guys remember the story of Moses? They're wandering around the desert, and they have this tent, Right? And they, they, they pick the tent up, and they move the tent, and then they put the tent down when? When this pillar of cloud in the daytime or a pillar of fire in the nighttime moved around. Those things symbolized the presence of God amongst the people, and it guarded them while they wandered the wilderness. Right? People saw that and were trembling when they looked at the nation of Israel. They said, that God must be great if he dwells in a pillar of fire. Right? In that same situation, God provided for them as they moved about the wilderness. Every morning they woke up, their food was just on the ground. They grabbed the basket, went out of the tent, and grabbed their food. It just, boom, it happened. God provided for them in that place. So he protected them. He provided for them. And he continued to separate them out from the other people. So when they looked at the other nations who are barbaric in their handling of one another, they were to separate themselves out from that kind of a nation and be Gracious to one another, loving and kind to protect children and women and not take advantage of them like other nations. To not worship other gods and give themselves to them, but to give themselves fully to the Lord. And so the tabernacle, then the temple, these things in the Old Testament point to this abiding presence of God, the glory of God among his people. It was something that separated them out from all of the nations around them. And then the beautiful thing that we see in the New Testament when we turn the page and we realize that something has changed, we see that Jesus has come. And in John 1, one of my favorite verses in Scripture, verse 14, the Scriptures tell us that Jesus came and he dwelt among us. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I know you all read Greek, just like me. I don't read Greek. Uh, and it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When you look at those interlinear Bible helps, blueletterbible.com, I mean, that sucker's awesome. The word dwelt is the same word for tabernacle. It literally says, Jesus showed up and tabernacled here. It's a beautiful homage to the reality of God's dwelling presence among the Israelites in the Old Testament. John is very clearly trying to say, hey, guys. Jesus is the temple. The glory of God is here, and it's here in the person of Jesus. If you want to know what does the glory of God look like, you look at Jesus now. You used to look at the temple, now you look at Jesus. 
He's the one that's going to show you the fullness of the glory of God. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus came and represented. He himself actually said, I am the temple. He said it. Don't believe me? John 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up after three days? But, John said, he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus said, I am the temple. Jesus said, you can tear it down, tear it down and I'm going to raise it up in three days. In the New Testament, Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the fullness of the glory of God. We see in the transfiguration, he goes up on the mountainside with uh, Peter, James, and John, and God lights him up, right? Whiter clothes than bleach could ever do. Just, and, and, and Peter, you know, just the knucklehead that he is, he's like, hey, let's build some tents. He doesn't know what to do. He's, just like, ah! he's so beside himself, right? Because God just lights Jesus up to finally show some of the disciples who he really is. It's like the pillar dropped, right? The pillar of cloud or the pillar of, of fire suddenly right on top of the mountain. Just so, show the disciples very clearly, hey, this, this is God in the flesh, right? Later in one of his letters to the church, Peter says, listen, we saw the resplendent glory on the top of the hill. We know that this is the representation of God, that he is the fullness of the glory of God. That's who Jesus is. And so we see Jesus taking the place in the New Testament of what the temple of God was in the Old Testament. He was the presence of God. He was the glory of God. He showed us the comfort and the protection and the provision of God. Jesus was the fullness of all of the things that the temple pointed to. And then one thing that's tremendous as you read on in the New Testament, Jesus is destroyed. And then three days later, Jesus does rise again. And then for a time, Jesus stays and hangs out with his disciples. They see him, they touch him, they hear him, they eat lunch with him and breakfast with him, they talk with him, they touch him. He hangs out with them so that they know that he's alive, so that they know that he's risen from the grave, so that they know what's next, so that they can see the plan coming together. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus descends or ascends up into heaven, and the rest of the New Testament, we see certain language that points us to the understanding that now we, the church, the people of God, that we are the temple. It's, it's glorious. Ephesians 2, Paul says this, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The language is poignant and beautiful and unmistakable. Paul is saying, now you are where God dwells. Now you have been built up to be the visible representation of God. Now you are the place of peace. 
Now you are the place of presence and protection and provision. You are the temple. If you don't know it, the name of our church comes from 1 Peter 2.4, where Peter says basically the same thing as you come to him. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is all temple language. A house, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. Peter, who was on the hill, who saw Jesus resplendent in glory and knew that he was the temple, now begins to talk to the people as if they're the temple and the priesthood and the place where sacrifice takes place with Jesus right in the middle of it. We are now the temple. So Jesus in the New Testament is the temple in the fact that he is the full and perfect and visible representation of God. And the church is the temple in the New Testament, in that now we are the visible representation of God. So in the scriptures, in the New Testament, the point was that if you want to see God, you look in the Old Testament toward the temple, and you look in the New Testament at Jesus. If you want to see God, you look at Jesus. If you want to know the character of God, you look at Jesus. If you want to know the nature of God, you look at Jesus. If you want to know the attributes of God, you look at Jesus. If you want to know how does God handle sinners, you look at Jesus. If you want to know how does God handle religious arrogance, you look at Jesus. If you want to know how God handles those pushed to the margins of society, you look at Jesus. If you want to see how, how God handles the poor, how God handles the oppressed, how God handles women and children, you look at Jesus. If you want to know how God deals with humans, you look at Jesus. You see him stoop to his knees. You see him take on human flesh and suffering. You see him become a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You see him low. You see him near. You see him approachable. If you want to see God, you look at Jesus. And now the scriptures, if we're rightly understood in the world around us, they would look at the Bible and they would hear the Bible say, if you want to see God, you look at his church. And frankly, that's partially terrifying, is it not? If you want to see God, you look at the church, okay? Let's pull out of the scriptural context here and just jump into America. If I was to tell everyone on the streets that I can guarantee they can see God, if I just started doing that all week, every single person that I encounter, I say, hey, I know, I know exactly how you can see God. Just every person, stranger, neighbor, friend, coworker, every single person. If I just started walking through every single day, every conversation, every single encounter, and just said, hey, I, I know how you can see God. I know how you can see God. Right? And I just built up the suspense and kept telling the same people the same thing. I know how you can see God. I know how you can see God. I know how you can see God. Trust me, I know. By the authority of God, I can tell you how to see God. And I get them all together in a place, and I finally say, this is how you can see God. You're supposed to look at the church. It terrifies me. Right? It's scary to think that we are the ones that should be showing other people what God is like. 
that I should be able to say to all those people as I build the suspense about how they can see God, I can say, do you want to know how God looks on you? You should come to the church. God will treat you there with his presence. If you want to know how God approaches those on the margins of our society, go to the church and you'll see. If you want to know how God treats the vulnerable and the poor and women and children, go to the church and you'll see. If you want to know how God treats Democrats and Republicans and right and left, go to the church. You'll see how God treats people. You want to see how God says to handle resources. You want to see how God says to live in marriage. You want to see how God says families should be built. You want to see how God says to conduct business. You want to see how God says to be employees. You want to see how God says to be neighbors. Come to Stonehouse Church on Sunday and we'll show you. It's terrifying. Why? Because why we fall so short. We fall so short. And that's the call of Haggai. call of Haggai is, dear Christian, in your neighborhood, and in your city, and in your church, the visible representation of the glory of God is lying in ruins. So stand up and build. That's it. That's, that's what Haggai is saying. Take a moment and recognize that what God has established as the thing to point people to him, take a moment and recognize that that thing is lying in ruins. Meanwhile, I really, really, really spend a lot of time and energy and effort making sure my house doesn't lie in ruins, right? This is the heavy, hard confrontation of the word of God. It's strong, but listen, it's compassionate. It's compassionate. The church is this visible representation of God, and so we should be saying to the world, if you want to see God, if you want to see Jesus, then look at the church, right? This calls us to a completely different life than sometimes the church is prone to live. It calls us to a life like Jesus that is so friendly with sinners, it's not even funny, right? When was the last time some religious person in your life called you a friend of drunkards, a friend of sinners, I saw this awesome subtweet this week. There was a guy who tweeted, listen, you need to have friends that make you read the Bible more. You need to have friends that make you come to church more. You need to have friends that help you make the right choices more. You need to have friends, all this stuff, which is good. I'm not saying it's bad, but there was a subtweet, and the subtweet was, you need to have friends that make your reputation questionable. You need to have friends where people will look at the group of people around you and say, ugh, you sure you want to hang with those people? You need to have friends that will make you questioned by religious authorities around you to say, ah, I don't know if you're keeping the right company. Why? Because that's the kind of life Jesus lived. He lived a life surrounded by the kind of people that made his reputation get questioned. 
Right? It was a beautiful example of the both and that we need in our lives. Yes, please surround yourself with strong Christian friends who can pull you up. But listen, if you are completely void and absent of living a life amongst the people who would be questioned by the religious elite, then you might not look as much like Jesus as we could. To pursue a Christ-like life, living in the way that would glorify God and show this visible representation of God, we move outward toward people. We move outward towards those that often the church has left on the side. But listen, I want, I want to make sure that we hear something else. Instead of just hearing the word church, I want us to, to broaden this whole thing. That We're not primarily concerned about a building when we say church, when we say God's temple. We're not primarily concerned about one meeting, one week, one day of the week. We're not primarily concerned about a, a, a particular presence or a logo or some social media account. What we're particularly concerned about is the actual people of God living in the lives that God has put them to live. We're concerned about the, the people of God put in particular places by God to proclaim the word of God by, his, by our words and by our deeds so that others might experience the presence of God and begin to see the restoration of God in their life. The church is so much more about a, a, a people that are like a family that have a feel to them that is this glorious and beautiful and ready to receive and ready to instruct and ready to help and ready to lift up and ready to come around people, that the people of God be these kind of people. They'll be pursuing one another to continue to build in one another the glory of God, learning to see others and learning to see the world around us rightly because of the centrality of the scriptures being taught among us. The hope of the church is that the glory of God would be seen in their love for one another, Jesus said. This is how they'll know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Let that be the symbol that sets us apart. The church of God might be the people who are befriending their neighbors and coworkers and strangers and even their enemies, working diligently day in and day out to establish the glory of God so that it's visible to the world around us. This book of Haggai, we'll see it this week, next week, and the following, that it's really all about the ongoing work of building up the people of God. And what the rest of this passage today here shows us is that this is primarily God's work. And God does the work through us, his people. He shows us, he leads us, he brings us to the place where we respond and do the things that he has called us to do. And so, yeah, sometimes this means church stuff, right? This means being present. This means engaging, community, learning, growing, humbly submitting, right? It means church stuff, yes, sometimes, yeah, absolutely. But it does not only mean those things. It means the primacy of God's glory in our marriages, right? It means believing what God says about how to build our families. 
It means using the gifts and the calling of God in our lives to live in our vocation for the glory of God because he is continuing to create, he is continuing to provide, and he is continuing to redeem through the work of our hands, right? That's what our whole city group study was about last semester, that in the work that we have, God is actually doing his work. That's why we can't separate out church is godly and work is eh, Right? They're so integral to the work of God, both and. And so we live with deep intentionality in our workplaces. We live with deep intentionality in our marriages and among our families. That we want to be about neighborhoods and cities, developing places where people will have the opportunity to hear the truth of God. And that we want to be the kind of people that show the poor, the widow, the, act, the outcast, the vulnerable, and sinners. We show them that they are welcomed into the family of God. They're welcomed into the house of God. That instead of being told, hey, you, get your life right and come be close to God, we do like Jesus and we go to them while their life's a mess. While our life is a mess, we go. We engage because that's what Jesus did. Again, just the thought that the church is the temple of God, that we are the representation of the glory of God to our neighbors, and to our city, right? On some level, it's terrifying, and on another level, it is deeply invigorating. Haggai's question comes to these people. Why aren't you building? What is holding us up, right? He just blatantly says, listen, it's in ruins, and your houses are doing good. It leads us to ask the question, what, what primary concern is at our fingertips as we live out our days? What primary concern, our house or God's house? Okay, with all that backdrop, think. With all that backdrop, thinking through, what is my primary concern in my life? My house or God's house? Okay, not a building, not a time, not a, okay? All that other stuff, am I primarily, as I live about my life, concerned about building my glory? Or am I primarily concerned about building God's glory? Right? Because at my job, I can do both. This is... Right? This is the, the, the rub of the New Testament. We have obediences, but then we have some things that we can do the exact same thing two different ways. Right? Like, y'all go to work this week. Okay? Yeah, go to work. Oh my God, I said y'all. Go to work this week. You should. And you can do that with a completely godless motivation. You can completely live out your week at work without God. You could do that. Absolutely. Lead you to make different choices, lead you toward different kinds of energies, focuses, different excuses, right? Different kinds of fights. <laughs> you, could, you could live the whole work week without God. Or you can engage every activity under the power of God, with the Spirit of God, in an intentionality that says, I'm going to glorify God with my deeds. I'm going to glorify God with this work. He's given me this gift, this capacity, and this place, and it's not an accident, and so I'm going to live into these things with intentionality. To share the gospel with coworkers? Yeah, sure, absolutely. And to do the work that God's given you to do. Because it's good, godly work, right? To sustain, or to provide, or to create. God's given you these good things. We can do two different things with completely different motivations. You can do that in your marriage. You can do that with your kids. You can do that with your recreation. 
everything we do, we can do with two different motivations. The motivation to build my house or the motivation to build God's house. Right? And thank God for grace because the waters get murky. Amen? The forgiveness of God is there as we stumble our way through. He continually restores our hearts and brings us into recognition of where we're pursuing our glory rather than his glory. Because we never, again, this week you could live all week with an effort to intentionally pursue God's glory and you'll miss it every single day. You'll miss it. And what's there to catch you as you miss it? God's glorious grace is there to restore you as his child. So the question for us is, what, what is it that we put out as an excuse? Why do we say, oh, right now isn't time for the glory of God? Right? Because we're building something. They were building. They were home restoring something. They restored their houses and God's house stayed in ruin. So you're building something. So we just have to be honest and ask the question, what, what am I really building? Am I building for my security and my comfort and my honor and my glory and my popularity and my renown? Is that why I'm building? Or am I doing the exact same work for the purpose of honoring God? Am I trying to glorify Him in my life? And what kind of things am I throwing out there as an excuse? I'm just not ready. You know, I'm just not old enough. I'm just not at that financial level yet. I'm just, I'm not married yet. I'll do it then. You know, like, you, there's, we use a million excuses to say it's not yet time. I'm, I'm too young of a Christian. I'm not experienced enough. I don't know the books of the Bible. I, you know, whatever. I can't. <laughs> you can be used by God wherever you are, to build the glory of God, to labor for his renown, everywhere that you go, in everything that you do. What we see in this passage, interestingly enough, is that the people in their pursuit of building their own houses, in their effort to find fulfillment and satisfaction in that place, verses 9 through 11 show us that what they pursue gets, just falls right through their fingers, right? It says, you look for much, when you brought it home, I blew it away. It's crazy. He says, I've called for a drought on the grain and the hills and the beasts and all your labors. As you pursue these things for your own house, they continue to be dissatisfied. You grasp and it's just, just keeps getting right through our fingers. Right? So long as we are about building our own glory Fulfillment and satisfaction and contentment will evade our grasp. That's always the case with mammon, with the stuff of this world. If we serve it, it's going to fall through. It's, it cannot sufficiently satisfy us, right? It'll slip through our fingers if we pursue that satisfaction. The ultimate place to find deep soul contentment is in pursuing the glory of God in all that we do. You can have a mundane as job for all of eternity, not eternity, sorry, all of your life, have a slim retirement, lean heavily on social security, and live out your dying days with deep soul satisfaction. Why? Because of the glory of God. Because of the glory of God. He will satisfy you. And the grace of this passage is that in these Israelites' failure to put the glory of the, the Lord as primary, in that place, even though they had failed God in just a short time after coming home, 
in just a short time after deliverance took place, in just a short time after captivity ended, even though they were failing, what happened? God came to them. Right? This is the picture of the gospel, that in our failing, what does God do? Sit. Right? No. God drops the anger. He drops what we perceive as judgment. He comes low and he comes close and he pursues us with his word. Right? This is the grace of the scriptures, that they come to us in all different stages of our life and they call us to a greater glory. They kindly and graciously say, don't seek that which will just slip right through your fingers. Don't do it. I love you too much to leave you to that. I care so deeply for your soul, dear child, that I do not want to leave you. Grasping at straws for 80 years, it's so futile. Dear child, build what matters. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. Come and drink from the place where the, the, the water will never stop pouring out. Come and eat at the table where the service will never stop putting a plate full before your eyes. Come and take and eat and drink and get your fill from God. God can fulfill and God calls us to that place, and it's beautiful. The people respond, right? First in verse 12, the fear of the Lord falls on them. Like they get, they get scared a little bit. They're like, oh, oh, God saw, right? Oh my gosh, we, we forgot, and God saw. You're kind of shocked, and then in verse 14, it says, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Right? It is the very nature of God to come close to us in our failure and to remind us of the greater glory of pursuing him and then by his spirit to actually produce the obedience to do what he calls us to do. Right? That's where the morality changes completely. Haggai is not sitting back saying, hey, straighten up. Haggai is sitting back and saying, return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. He's near. He's close. He's calling you into a greater glory. Return to him. This is the glory of God that's at stake, and he will do the work. Philippians 2.13, 4 it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who works in you. The word of the Lord came to the people from Haggai the prophet, and then the spirit of the Lord came to the people so they could obey the prophet. This is glorious. God brings the word of warning, and then God brings the power to fulfill it. This is the work of the spirit in us. He actually responds to himself through our work. It's this glorious fulfillment. It reminds me of when I used to build with my dad, right? There was a couple of years, uh, my late teens and early 20s, where I worked full-time for him to, in the summer, and I remember kind of like the nerves when I started, like, ah, I don't want to make a mistake. My dad's really good at this, and if I do this wrong, then, you know, kind of like hesitated to get at things, right? Sometimes I didn't really own the job. I, I just was real timid about it. 
until I grew in this confidence to understand that my dad was with me and that his name was on the building that I was building. His name was on that house. His name was on that job. So as I worked, my dad worked with me and alongside me, and any mistake I made, he covered up easily or changed easily because he'd been doing it for 20 years on the day I was born, let alone at that time. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was building. He had a vision. He had a relationship. He had his character on the line, his attributes on the line, and he did the work as I did the work. It was a glorious thing. I became so confident in working with my dad because I knew he wasn't going to let this job slide. Never. He was never going to let the job slide. And he was always as close as the mention of his name. It sounds familiar. As soon as I said, hey, dad, boom, he showed up. Not with a condescending, come on, you stupid kid. Get it together. No. No, with this loving, corrective, gracious word that said, this is right. Let me instruct you, son. Let me help you, son. And I'm right here with you. This is the cry of Haggai 1. Verse 13, Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people of the Lord his message, which said, I am with you, declares the Lord. This is good news when we fail to respond to God and seek his glory over our own. What does God say? Respond to me and I am with you. This is his urging and this is his action that he draws near to us and he is with us as we fumble our way through obedience. As we say, yeah, you're right. Okay, we've got to reset. Try to walk in this direction. I'm with you, he says. God is with us as we seek his glory. So listen, the temple's in ruins, right? I mean, that's just the way it is. And you can point fingers at all sorts of problems and reasons for why it is the way it is. Whatever. Okay, we could argue for months. Why is the church in the condition blah, blah, blah. Listen, as for me and my house, Joshua said, I will serve the Lord. Let us decide in our homes, if you're a single in your individual life, if you're married in your marriage, if you have a family with your family, in your whatever your career is, in that workplace, within that industry, with the gifts that God has given you, in the places that he has put you, with the neighbors that you have, and the friends and the coworkers, and even some of the enemies, that you say, in this place, I will be about working for the glory of God. And then just to beg God for verse 13, God, will you be with me? Will you be with me? Will you stir my spirit to obedient action? Will you stir my spirit to take up this mantle? Will you stir my spirit to labor for the glory of God in my day, so long as it depends on me, Lord? Will you stir my spirit toward covenant faithfulness, toward enduring when opposition comes, toward sticking it out when all of my naysayers around me say God's not worth anything? To say, no, I'm putting God first no matter what. In as much as I can, and I'm going to stumble my way through that, Lord, would you be with me? Because the presence of God is our good. If he's with us, it doesn't matter what we're doing. It literally does not matter what we're doing. 
He can be glorified in all of it, in all of it, in your job, in your home, in your marriage, with your kids, in this city. Amen? Lord, would you be with me? Let's pray that together. Father, this morning we recognize that we fall short in living out a life of obedience and faithfulness to you that would bring you glory. It's just plain and simple. There's a lot of ways that we fall short. Some of them are more complicated than others, but the basic truth is we fall short of your glory. For some of us, there's been a long-standing neglect and a prioritization of self over you. And we thank you that you graciously come near to bring a strong word, to say there is no abiding joy in that. <laughs> there is no enduring fulfillment in that. Dear child, return to me and seek my glory first. So God, would you help us to respond in the appropriate ways? And God, I had to wrestle with this all week, and I know many of us are wrestling with it right now, just that we, we put the wrong categories on this immediately. We narrow down like what we think building your glory looks like. Would you help us to see that we can do all of the things in our lives for your glory? Our relationships, our work, our study, the handling of our finances, the choices that we have to make, the road that's ahead for us. We can do all of these different things with your glory as our primary concern. Help us to find the way that your glory filters down into all of these amazing places that just saturates our life so that we can seek your glory in all the things that we do. And God, we thank you that when we fumble, when we screw that up, when it's kind of foggy and unclear, when we miss the mark, we thank you that you're there with your grace. We thank you that your response is like my dad's response when I messed up on the job. It's not anger. It's not name-calling. It's not belittling. It's a simple, I'm here, son. I'm here. God, would you please be here? Tomorrow, as we scatter, would you be there? On Wednesday, when we hit the middle week, would you be there? On Thursday, when the weekend is in view, would you be there? On Friday, as we begin to plan our spare time, would you be there? A week from now, as we gather again, would you be there? God, please be with us. Please be with us. Help us. We need you. We're desperate for you. And we're so thankful that you love us and you've come near. We ask these things all in Christ's name. Amen.